Well, good morning. Um, turn your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel. I know that may be a curveball for you um, after where we've been, um, but uh, I am definitely excited about beginning this study. Um, it does connect in, in a lot of ways to where we've been. Um, we've been studying um, the book of Titus, how to be Christ's church in a broken culture. And the book of 1 Samuel really takes place in just that kind of culture. So it really fits where we've been. In a lot of ways, this book will illustrate um, some of the principles that Paul was sharing in the book of Titus. Um, it does actually pick up, if you remember where we left off in the Old Testament, um, when we briefly studied the book of Judges a, a couple of summers ago. Uh, I don't know if you remember that setting or, or not, um, but uh, Judges 21, 25, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right right in his own eyes. Um, that's the broken culture that we're talking about here. Now, we'll establish historical context better in, in a moment, um, but we do want to slow down and, and kind of properly begin our study of this book um, by looking at 1 Samuel 1, um, 1 and 2. So why don't you stand with me out of reverence respect um, for the Word of God, and let's read those two verses together um, in 1 Samuel. First uh, Samuel 1, verse 1. There was a certain man of Ramatham Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkinah, the son of Jehoram, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penaniah. And Penaniah had children, but Hannah had no children. And you may be seated. Um, we will be breaking the text down um, today uh, really in, in two pieces. First, we start with a look at what we're going to call a divided nation. Uh, again, this setting uh, of the nation of Israel. Then we'll get to 1 Samuel 1, which is really a look at a divided home. Um, uh, that's kind of the way we break it down. But um, again, as you look at the big picture of this text, we really do pick up um, in a similar vein as to where we were in the book of Titus, um, but also where we were as we looked at, at Judges uh, a few summers ago and even prior to that when we were studying the Exodus of Israel in the book of Exodus. Um, after the Exodus, um, Joshua led the people into the promised land. Sooner or later, we'll have to go back and, and study that um, specifically. Um, but after the, the nation of Israel entered the promised land under Joshua's leadership, the judges, that period, followed um, very swiftly. It's about a 350-year period in, in Israel's history in which the nation fell swiftly into apostasy. Um, in the, the nation of Israel's view of the Old Testament, they would put the book of Joshua, um, Judges, First and Second Samuel, and First and Second Kings together. Um, and they often labeled those books in, in one group as the former prophets. Um, together, they really complete Israel's story from exile or, or from exodus in Egypt to exile um, when the nation collapsed in the promised land. It's the rise and fall of the nation kind of compartmentalized in those books. Now, the book of 1 Samuel plays a very crucial role in this period because the book and, and even the person of Samuel is kind of the bridge builder between the judges 
and the kings. Um, and Samuel as an individual is a bit of a ray of hope in a dark, dark time. Okay, it's a, a broken culture, but at least there was Samuel, you might say. Now, Samuel, of course, is not a king. Um, he is a prophet. Um, you could argue he's a bit of a priest. Um, some would say he's the last judge. Not sure that's really true. I think Samson is best seen as the last judge. Um, but more importantly, he anoints Israel's first king, Saul. And then he anoints David as well, who we're probably more familiar with. Um, and yet, it's interesting. Uh, the kings are very important. Saul, David, uh, these names that have a lot of Old Testament history to them. And yet, they do not get what you would call a birth narrative. Um, scripture has quite a few birth narratives in them. Moses gets one. Obviously, Jesus, John the Baptist, others. But Samuel gets a birth narrative, all right? So he's not a king. We don't really think he would be classified as a judge, um, but he has a birth narrative. Now, if Judges is the book of no king, um, 1 Samuel is the book of man's king, um, talking about Saul. 2 Samuel would be the book of God's king, David. Okay, simple way to kind of keep it all compartmentalized. Obviously, when you connect to David, um, you're eventually going to connect to Jesus. Um, I hope you remember in the Gospel of Luke, um, that was kind of the most popular phrase used for our Messiah was the son of David, a fulfillment of prophecy. So in that way, I, I hope you understand, I, I pray about where we go next, and I really believe Samuel fits so well with Titus. It fits really well with the Gospel of Luke um, because it brings us back to um, an understanding of the son of David and what that title really means, and we need that Bible history. Now, um, again, it's very relevant, very applicable for today. Um, but just know that even as we study this book and, and Saul and David, you've got to know that Jesus is sort of standing in the shadow of all that typology, okay? Now, uh, back to Israel's history, though, and, and the actual setting of 1 Samuel. Some of you uh, may remember there was a cycle in the time period of the judges that the nation of Israel went through uh, multiple times. Um, maybe you remember that. It was rebellion, um, retribution, or discipline from God, um, repentance, revival. And so we're going to set the stage for this book um, in its right time period by kind of walking through that period again. All right? Uh, it always started with rebellion. Unfortunately, rebellion really was the centerpiece of that. That, uh, 350 year period of the judges in Israel's history. Um, for the most part, there was no prophetic voice um, among the people, and they began to adopt the pagan practices of the peoples they encountered as they entered the promised land. They become idolaters. Um, they, their moral practices began to mirror the sins of the nations that they had swallowed up as they entered the promised land, from sexual infidelity to thievery, you name it. Um, they were, in general, a leaderless um, loose tribal people is how you would see Israel during this time period. But as the covenant people of God, we got to know they were held to a greater standard or a higher standard than that. God had made them conditional promises. If you remember the old covenant, um, they had exchanged oaths with the Lord. Um, if you, again, if you're familiar with the book of Deuteronomy, you know that there were consequences for when they didn't obey. There were blessings for when they did obey. Uh, there was a lot going on, and they had kind of forgotten all of that. And so that is really the, the rebellion that we're describing. Um, from rebellion, you would move 
moved to retribution. And again, really it's better understood as discipline. God would begin to discipline the nation to call them back into fidelity with him. Um, God even appointed other peoples to um, invade and or harass them. Um, from a, a historical time period, um, Egypt, Babylon, Assyria were very weak at this point. So they're not really involved. Instead, the Philistines rise to prominence. Um, the Ammonites, um, descendants of Lot, were very much involved at this time. They were Israel's primary enemies during the 350-year period, along with some other peoples. The Philistines particularly were a constant source of difficulty for Israel. Um, historically speaking, they were the first people in the region to popularize the use of iron in their weapons, um, and that made them pretty formidable in battle, certainly. Um, but really, you've got to keep in mind that it was God's judgment on Israel that caused the worst of the nation's problems, okay? Uh, it was the, the retribution or discipline or even punishment. It was not meant to invoke revenge or to exact revenge, but it was meant to trigger a different response. It was meant um, to trigger what God's discipline in our lives even today is meant to trigger, um, which is to cause repentance. It's to bring us to this point of repentance. And thankfully, the book of Judges is highlighted by uh, short periods of Israel's national repentance. On occasion, fleeting, but on occasion, their hardship, their persecution, it reached an unbearable point, and in desperation, uh, they would cry out to the God of their fathers, and they would repent of their sin, they would beg for deliverance. And in that way, the book of Judges really is, it's the gospel depicted on a national scale. Uh, that cycle is the same cycle that most of us have lived through in our lives. We've rebelled, we've gone our own way, we've walked into sin, and, and we've moved away from God, and then maybe through God's goodness and grace and mercy in some form or fashion, uh, the discipline of God um, comes into our lives and begins to move us back to the Lord. We repent um, and then we experience revival. That's the cycle that is supposed to occur, okay? And, and that is essentially the gospel. When you see Judges 21, 25, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Uh, that's really a rebellious statement. Um, it's a reminder that when we do what we want to do, it doesn't work out. Um, we need to be submitted to the will of the Lord. We need to be um, following his plan. In so many ways, that is really a New Testament statement. It's the equivalent of Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Um, you do what you want to do your way, and you're going to walk into sin. Um, and you're going to be separated from a holy God because of that sin. And so all of this is a reminder that, that all of us ultimately are sinners in need of a Savior. And, and our behavior, um, good, bad, or whatever, our behavior, while generally responsible for God's discipline in our lives, our, our behavior can never dig us out of the hole that we've dug for ourselves. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Um, this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Uh, it, is an, uh, it is a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. You may remember Titus, um, his very last sentence. Uh, Paul, in that letter last week that we looked at, it was about grace. 
It's grace by which we're saved, not of works. Um, no, our, our rebellion, our, our works is what got us into trouble. Instead, we need a sinless sacrifice. We need a Savior. Um, again, Titus, hopefully you remember that study. Hadn't been but just a week or so ago. Uh, Titus 2, um, one of those salvation uh, statements. Um, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So as we look at the context of the book of 1 Samuel, we have to start with the, the broader biblical question is, do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Everything about this book foreshadows the coming of a deliverer or a Messiah. Um, everything about what Israel went through, this cycle we're talking about, everything you read in the New Testament points to the fact that we need to be forgiven of our sin. And Jesus Christ has come to do that. All of us have a sin problem, but thankfully Jesus exists. We need a deliverer. He is the one. All right? So in so many ways, the book of Judges and then subsequently on to 1 Samuel still speaks today. It foreshadows Jesus. Now, in their time period, God tended to deliver Israel in a different way. Um, it didn't result in the coming of Jesus, but there was a, um, when they repented, when they saw their sin for what it was and they turned, God supplied them with a temporary deliverer, um, a leader, uh, a, a judge, you might say, again, foreshadowing the Messiah. But uh, these judges um, ushered in brief periods of the last part of the cycle that we see in Judges, which is revival. Okay, anybody ever pray for revival today? If you do not, I would encourage you to do so because I believe we desperately need revival. We need revival as a nation. We need revival as a church. We need revival as individuals, okay? And that's part of what happens in this cycle. They would get to that place and there was revival. The first judge was Othnel, the nephew of Caleb, um, if you may remember him as one of God's faithful spies in the time of the Exodus. But um, as the line of judges play out, the period of national revival seems to get briefer and briefer. And over time, even the character of the judges seem to decline. Now, I'll interject this point. You may say this is a lot of history. This is boring and dry. I love it, okay? So uh, I'm sorry if you feel that way, but I, I'll tell you this. If you'll follow along and if you'll let it all kind of fit, you'll realize how beautiful the Word of God is and how every block is laid upon a previous block and how it all makes sense um, and how it all comes alive if we'll just do our due diligence and understand when it was written and to who it was written and why it was written, okay? I, I hope I'm helping you with that, um, but if I'm boring you, hang on. We'll get to a real person in real life in just a moment, all right? Um, but the judges, it's a period of decline, and they got worse and worse until we come to Samson. And I hope you remember Samson. He was a man born into a Nazaritic vow to the Lord who um, slowly forsook everything about his relationship with the Lord and indulged his flesh. And yet he was the deliverer that had been sent 
to this nation and I believe he represented their own decline uh, eventually Samson himself fell and so the last judge falls and the, and the final chapters of the book anybody remember Judges 19 20 21 remember any of that um, it, it, I, I blush the whole way through it okay um, it's difficult there's um, the rape of a concubine her body being dismembered and mailed out to the rest of the nation I'm not making this up okay that's what was happening and it was brutal. There was a war between the nation itself, um, uh, the Gibeonites and their wickedness, which subsequently implied the tribe of Benjamin, and there was war, and uh, they started um, kidnapping and abducting women for brides. It's awful. Anybody, am I, anybody remember any of this? Okay. Um, that's where we leave off as we come to 1 Samuel. And all of that history has a lot to do with what we're going to study because Saul is a Benjamite who's from the city of Gibeah, uh, Gibeah, which is where they did all of that. Anyway, that's more than you need to know today. But just so you know, it all connects. The revivals become briefer and briefer, further and further apart, um, and that cycle really presages this book of 1 Samuel um, because Israel's decline and lack of a leader uh, leads it to mirror uh, the heathen nations around it over and over and over again and to the point where they begin to clamor for a king. Everybody else had a king. They wanted a king. Now, the book of 1 Samuel will describe to us the transition um, from the prophets or the judges uh, to the king. Um, and just that transition itself presents us with kind of a, a quandary. Um, one of the key tensions in the book of 1 Samuel, um, because we're going to have to struggle to reconcile Israel's demand for a king with God's provision of one. Um, obviously, most of us know our Bible history. The first king, Saul, doesn't work out very well. Okay, um, the second king David is often referred to as a man after God's own heart. Um, he enters an eternal covenant with God. He's promised that a descendant of His will sit on an eternal throne. It's a promise ultimately fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And yet, David has a lot of warts. If we're being honest about it, so there's kind of this tension: Was Israel right to demand a king, or were they wrong? And, and I think as we go along, and I don't want to resolve all that tension right now. I'll just say this: I think it's a little bit of both and so all of that brings us back to the book of first samuel i know this is the longest introduction in the history of man but um you know if, if you've never studied first samuel now you know where it fits all right um Samuel is the bridge between the judges and the kings, and he fulfills the role of a prophet um, in, in this text as well. In God's perfect world, I'll say this, the prophet would interpret the covenant demands for Israel, and the king would administer the covenant. I believe that's the perfect world as it's designed. That picture is rarely fulfilled, though, uh, in Israel's experience. Now, that's how it was supposed to be. And so even with that picture, we're going to see a corrupt priesthood early in this text, um, forcing Samuel into the role of priest, um, whether that was really what God had designed for him or not. Uh, again, all that, what's it foreshadow? Well, it foreshadows the fact that there's really only one true perfect king prophet priest his name is jesus okay anything short of jesus is going to let us down all right but back to the book 
Quick word about authorship, just because, you know, modern intellectuals, we always ask this question. Um, Samuel dies toward the end of the book of 1 Samuel, um, so we know he did not pen the entire book, nor did he pen 2 Samuel. Um, truly, there's no authorship actually claimed in Scripture, um, leading us to guess um, I would say accurately that a combination of Samuel, um, his disciples, you may have heard of the prophet Nathan and the prophet Gad. Um, those were disciples of Samuel. Um, they probably, along with others, compiled the bulk of First and Second Samuel. Regardless, though, of, of who the actual authors were at the time, Israel never doubts that the book is authentic, authenticated or, or real. Um, we see plenty of evidence of its accuracy as we march along. Paul, I believe, certainly saw as historical truth. Um, Acts 13, I think he refers to the narrative of 1 Samuel here. Um, all this took about 450 years. That's to get from uh, the promised land um, being entered and, and captured to the time of the judges and the judges into the kings and on. Um, after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. That's this period that we're studying. All right, so... With all that said, now um, let's move into the book and begin examining what God has to say through the lives of Hannah, Samuel, Eli, Saul, David. Hopefully those are familiar names um, to you. Uh, they all lived around 1000 B.C. Um, and in a sense, this book was written to be preached history. Um, so it's really good material for a sermon series, by the way. Uh, on a universal level, I think for us as individuals, but also on a national level, it means something to Israel. I think a lot of those threads still mean something to any nation that wants to be um, led by God. All right, there's your introduction. Now we break down the text. A divided nation, not a surprise that you're going to see a divided home um, as a part of that nation. As goes the home, so goes the nation. I know you can't tell anyone today that, but it's true. Um, verses 1 and 2, there was a certain man of uh, Ramatham Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkaniah, the son of Jehoram, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, an Ephrathite. Uh, he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, uh, Penaniah. And Penaniah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, you just thought the history lesson was over. Um, we got to set some context here, too, all right? Um, I know we connected a lot of this to the bigger book of Judges. Um, I hope you understand. I'm not over-exaggerating that context. In fact, I think there's meant to be an understanding. Uh, the Jews, the, the Israelites would have known it immediately. There's a natural connection from the book of Judges and the book of 1 Samuel, and even we're skipping Ruth, um, which appears in the biblical record in the same time period. All three of them have some real similarities to them. Um, similar language, similar word usage, even similar phraseology. Um, and, and all of them, you kind of drop down into the, the lives of average um, Jewish families, um, and you see things that are going on. Um, Ruth, uh, chapter 4. I hope you're familiar with Ruth just a little bit, um, but you even get this uh, hint or analogy uh, in the genealogy leading on to King David, Obed, father Jesse, Jesse, father David. Um, all these are connected, and they all point to a king. Um, Judges actually has a mirror image of 1 Samuel 1 in it. Um, Judges 13, verse 2. It says, There is a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. 
Uh, everything about that verse is imitated in, in 1 Samuel 1. Uh, we get a phrase, there was a certain man in both texts. Then we get his hometown, his name, his tribe or region, you might say, a reference to his marital status and the barrenness of his wife. Now, I think not coincidentally, Judges 13.2 introduces us to Samson's father, uh, Manoah. Samson is, again, kind of argumentative, but you might say the last judge. Now, in 1 Samuel 1, we meet Elkaniah, Samuel's father. Samuel is the bridge between the judges and the kings, all right? Um, now, uh, both these men are actually dedicated to the Lord as Nazarites at birth. They got a lot in common. One, I would argue, fulfills his vows a lot better than the other, but we'll get to that. Now, back to the text. If you'll allow a slight jump forward, again, just to establish context. In both Samson and Samuel's birth narratives, um, we see God's hand very powerfully, I believe. Um, no matter how many names I drop, no matter how much history we look at, please understand that God is the star of history. Okay, It's always, always about God. And in all these birth narratives, um, God is, is the key. In the book of 1 Samuel alone, in the first three chapters of 1 Samuel, God is mentioned or alluded to some 60 times. All right, so if you go home and you just read it, you're going to see Lord, 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 Lord over and over and over again. Um, Adonai, Jehovah, however your translation wants to put it, um, God's name is there. And so, yes, we're just dropping down in the life of a very simple Jewish family, but God's work is still the story. And that's true throughout Scripture, still true today. Um, Psalm 78, um, same thing's true with the first king. He chose David, his servant, took him from the sheepfold. He chose him. Um, from following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people. Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. You can try to make David the hero, but God is the hero. Okay? Always. It's always about God. Um, Paul, very much the same theological point. Acts 14, in past generations he, meaning God, allowed the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he, God, did not leave them, uh, leave himself without a witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts um, with food and gladness. Whatever's happening, God is the one who's sovereign. He's in control. He's at work. All right? So, Got to know that as you move into this family. But uh, let's take a closer look at Hannah. Um, really, we start with a closer look at her husband, Elkaniah. Um, we see his town first. Um, there was a certain man of Ramatham, Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name um, was Elkaniah. There's some dispute about just which city this text is referring to. Uh, fortunately, the exact location is not necessary to understand what's going on. Um, but I, I really believe, and most scholars would say, that this is actually um, Ramah. Um, that's how the book of 1 Samuel refers to this city throughout the rest of the book. Um, it's a city located in the land of Zuf, um, Ephraim's territory. Ephraim is one of the tribes of Israel. Uh, it's their tribal territory. Um, it's a city which in the New Testament is typically referred to as Arimathea. Okay, um, just so you know, and again, the exact location isn't critical. Um, we can clearly deduce um, that Elkaniah lives in a city in the tribal territory of 
Ephraim. Um, Ephraim is one of Joseph's sons who was grafted into the tribal allotment, by the way. Um, this location really only remains important because Samuel eventually makes Ramah his home through the remainder of the book, okay? Um, so anyway, that's where Elkanah is from, his town. And now we see his family. Uh, the son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, um, and Ephrathite. Um, genealogy isn't earth-shattering, but it tells us some important things. Um, first of all, this genealogy is actually repeated um, verbatim, um, just in reverse order um, in the book of First Chronicles. Okay, and there's some more information dropped in there that matters. First uh, Chronicles six again. Um, uh, this this genealogy. Um, is counting backwards, you might say, in generations. This uh, First Chronicles is counting forward. Elkanah, his son, Zophiah, his son, Nahath, his son, Eliab, his son, Jehoram, his son, Elkaniah, his son. That's the same Elkaniah. If you go on in First Chronicles, you get some more important information. You get the descendants of Samuel, okay? Um, Joel, his firstborn, second Abijah, the sons of Merah. Uh, you get all that information, which you're like, well, does that really matter? Well, it matters a little bit because then in First Chronicles 6, verses 31 through 35, you get a curious phrase that says, these are the men whom David put in charge of the service of song in the house of the Lord after the ark rested there all right when the temple was built or as the tabernacle was transitioning these men helped handle the ark uh, they ministered with song before the tabernacle of the tent of meeting until solomon built the house of the lord in jerusalem and then you get the same genealogy again of sam samuel and his sons which brings us around to the greater point is that samuel was a descendant uh, a part of the line of the kohathites you may have heard of, of Heman, the singer. Um, these men were a branch of the tribe of Levi, and, and they were tabernacle and later temple musicians. But they were also the original carriers of the Ark of the Covenant. Okay? Again, I know you're going, well, that's a lot of history, but does it matter? Well, it matters a little bit because it tells us that Elkaniah, he, he's not royalty or anything, but he's a Levite, okay? He's of the line of Levi. The ark was actually being cared for by Eli at this time, the priest and his sons. Um, but Elkaniah and his family were attached to the service of the ark. They were attached to the, the tabernacle, and that's why we likely see them traveling annually to Shiloh, the current location of the tabernacle at this point in Israel's history. His family as Levites had no tribal inheritance, which is why even though he's not an Ephraimite, he's living among the Ephraimites. He didn't have his own land, okay? He didn't have a tribal inheritance. But his life centers around the tabernacle, the ark, and the sacrificial system instituted by Moses after the exodus. And so it establishes some important connections for us going forward. Elkaniah is connected to the Levites, the priesthood, the ark, simply the religious leadership of Israel, um, which makes sense as we're introduced to his son Samuel in the text. Samuel is of a fitting line if God's going to anoint a prophet or, or transition the nation from the judges to the kings. 
And yet, I think there's a little bit of a contradiction here. Um, I think we're to read of Elkaniah as a bit of an everyman, uh, so to speak, you know, just drop down like we did with Manaiah uh, in First Judges or in Judges 13. Um, he's not particularly notable. He's not of the tribe of Judah, you know. He's not of the ruling class, um, but he's not exactly a nobody either. He knew of Jehovah. Um, he had participated in leading the nation in worship of Jehovah. I believed uh, I believe and based upon the fact that Elkaniah had two wives it's likely he was a man for some means for his day I mean because who can afford two wives um all right, just making sure you're alive out there. You're still with me. All right. Um, I mean that seriously, though. In their time period of history, certainly, few could afford two dowries. All right? And so he's, he's the only commoner mentioned in First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings um, as having multiple wives. Everyone else who's referenced are just kings. All right? So here's this commoner with two wives. That brings us to the last thing that's crucial, though. His marriages. And I understand having two wives, it's not just that it's expensive, it's that it's wrong, okay? Um, I don't want anyone to leave confused this morning. It says he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penaniah. Penaniah had children, but Hannah had no children. We're going to see some redeeming qualities in Elkaniah uh, in the days ahead. We've already kind of alluded to some of them. It does appear that he was faithful to travel to Shiloh um, to worship the Lord um, outside of the rest of the way he conducts his personal business. Uh, but he is an every man of Israel at this time, broken culture. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. I believe he's an every man of Israel because he's guilty uh, of a very uh, heinous crime, which is polygamy. Um, I hope you know God's plan for marriage as affirmed from the very, very beginning in the book of Genesis as Jesus quotes multiple times in the New Testament. Um, Genesis 2, 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, singular. They shall become one flesh. It can't become one flesh if there's multiple, more than two people involved, all right? Uh, the, I know our world is confused and we have new math, um, but I'm just telling you it's it's pretty, pretty simple when you read God's Word. God's Word never encourages any departure from this plan. And I know everyone will go, well, but there's, there's polygamy in the Bible. That doesn't mean it's right. There's homosexuality in the Bible, and it's wrong too. There's adultery in the Bible. It's wrong too. There's lots of things listed that are wrong in God's Word, okay? You need to understand God makes plain in Genesis what is right. Polygamy is wrong. Every time you see polygamy in God's Word, you will see a negative connotation. Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, not a good thing. Uh, Jacob, Rachel, Leah, not a good thing. It all begins, by the way, with the line of Cain in Genesis 4, 19. Um, Lamech had two wives. Lamech was the seventh, son, or seventh generation after wicked Cain, and so it shouldn't surprise us that polygamy begins with the line of the first murderer, all right? It's a sin against the very heart of God, and it brings a lot of pain to this text. Now, we don't have time to chase the rabbit of Lamech. Um, let's just say he was an arrogant, brutal man. Polygamy was just one of his crimes, all right? Um, so we shouldn't be uh, admiring something that a wicked man started, all right? Um, so all that brings us back around, though, to Hannah kind of in the backstory of the first couple of verses. She'll be in the front of our text next week. Um, Hannah, though, is Samuel's mother. Her name means grace. Unfortunately, she's stuck in a very difficult situation. 
because the text lists her first, it's very likely that she is Elkaniah's first wife, which means that he's most likely married Penaniah because Hannah is barren and has not produced an heir for him yet. Uh, obviously, the Israelites, um, they put a lot of stock into having male sons, or, well, I guess you have to say male sons today, you know, because we don't know what a male is. Anyway, um, uh, they put a lot of stock into having an heir, a male, okay? Now, it is a little curious because this guy is a Levite, and he doesn't have a tribal inheritance, so he really doesn't need a son to pass the land on to, but he still seems to be really worried about having a kid, Okay? which I think is pretty normal, um, one way or the other. But um, huh, these, let's just say this is a big issue in the text. Um, and none of it justifies the division or the diversion into polygamy. Um, no more than Abraham's lack of an heir justified his dalliance with his wife's concubine, Hagar. Okay? But this difficulty places Hannah alongside a long list of women who were seen by God. Notice this. There's a long list of women that God makes it clear were dealing with barrenness that he saw, that he loved, that he cared for. Uh, that he had a plan for. I cannot tell you that every woman who's ever dealt with barrenness is going to be blessed with a child, but I know this. There are a few things that we see uh, in Scripture as often as God's concern for a woman without a child. It's just true, okay? Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Samson's mother, the Shuamite woman in 2 Kings, and that is Elisha's day. Elizabeth, the eventual mother of John the Baptist in the New Testament. And yes, I think you can accurately say all of their, the miraculous births that those women are given, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Samson, John the Baptist, they all foreshadow the most miraculous birth of all, Jesus, um, the virgin birth of Jesus via Mary. Mary but all of that, those, all those barren women, women, I think we see the heart of God um, for their difficulty and their pain. Now, getting ahead of ourselves a bit, back to the text real quick. Um, let me give you a quick little side note um, that is different in the Old Testament, but I think is still true in some ways today. Deuteronomy 7.14, Old Testament, Old Covenant, conditional covenant. God says you shall be blessed among all peoples, and that follows along this. If you do this, if you do this, if you do this, you shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall not be a male or female barren among you or among your livestock. Fruitfulness, not barrenness, was originally a part of God's covenant with Israel. I would go a step further. Fruitfulness not barrenness is how man was created in the garden. Man was created, Adam and Eve. Um, it was not good that man should be alone. Adam and Eve were uh, the first couple. They were married. God's design was that they would be fruitful and they would multiply the earth. Uh, they would not have to wrestle with barrenness. I, I don't know of anything as a pastor more heartbreaking than shepherding a group of people and knowing that at any one time there's always multiple people dealing with barrenness. And I hope you hear my heart just as a reminder, this is not how it's supposed to be. God did not design life that way. It's sin that broke 
things so that now we have um, men and women who, who deal with the inability to have a child that really desperately want one. And even the conditional covenant of the old covenant, what God is saying here is, if you will obey, if, if you will do rightly, I will bless you. I, I will change all the laws of the curse of sin and Israel won't have to deal with barrenness. But if you rebel against me, if you go your own way, you'll deal with that curse. Now, this picture still speaks for us today. I believe the nation of Israel is broken. It's in rebellion. It's running from God. And so Hannah is dealing with barrenness that she didn't necessarily author. She was just one among a, a wicked people. All right? We see no indication that her barrenness was the result of anything specific she had done. She's reaping the consequences of sin and living among a wicked people. I hope you understand how that's still true today. Our national culture, you can't argue otherwise, does not esteem children. And I believe there are many women barren today, um, yes, specifically due to the availability of abortion, uh, the demands of the sexual revolution, just the reality of sin. Our bodies don't always do what they're designed to do because sin has a price, and all of earth and everything around us is in a slow cycle of decay. Ladies, if, if you're here this morning and you've struggled with the ability to have a child, I sure hope you hear me. This was not God's plan. It wasn't the way our world was designed. It's not God's best. I, I wish I had the power to have a time of prayer and, and just bless everybody with a child. Can't do that because the world's broken. The world's broken. But I hope you're hearing from me that whatever's going on with you is not necessarily about you. It's about sin. Sin is the curse. Sin breaks this world the way it's supposed to do, and the way it's supposed to be, and the consequences of sin wreck our lives. Again, it's unlikely you've done anything specifically to author your predicament. Um, just if you're here today, uh, same thing could be said if, if you were born with a disability or whatever it may be. It's just the result of a broken world. And we're going to look at the pain of a broken world in the days ahead. But please hear me when I, I give a quick foreshadowing of where this text and, and the birth of Samuel is going. Again, I can't promise anyone the way your story will end, but I know this. God sees his hurting world. He sees hurting uh, people. He sees uh, his hurting children. Um, his provision often comes at unsuspecting times and unsuspecting ways. I, I don't know uh, what story he's going to author in your lives, but I know this. God is always up to something. Anybody willing to say amen to that? He is. Um, everything about his word, his son, and his nature tells us this. His hand is all over this story. Okay, uh, The Lord is mentioned over 60 times in the first three chapters here. His hand is all over all of our stories, and I would say especially so when life is hard. He's closer when it's hard uh, than, than you ever think he is. Remember the pain and the joy that uh, we meet in Elizabeth's story. Remember, remember uh, Luke chapter 1. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me. What she's saying is, I suffered and I hurt, and God saw me. And he took away my reproach among the people. Again, to Israel, it was a big deal to be barren. It was a curse. I don't know what God is doing, and I can't promise anyone again that your journey with barrenness is going to be broken by the birth of a child. I do know there's quite a few of those stories in this place. 
by the way. Um, I, I could narrow my focus and I could look specifically at some people who thought they weren't going to have a child and God provided a child, okay? He does that. It can happen. Don't ever give up, I would say, because he loves us and he sees us and he will, even if it's not the birth of a child, he will offer some, author something beautiful in our lives. Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. But we got to wrap up. Back to Elkaniah as we conclude. We have to note his disobedience here via the polygamy. We have to know how difficult this was for Hannah, how heartbreaking, how humiliating. Now she's forced to share her husband, her household, her marriage bed in ways that completely corrupt the beautiful picture of marriage and the covenant that it's intended to picture between Jesus and the bride. We see his sin, and I, I can't help but think uh, we're to see a contrast here um, between another book. Again, I don't want to give you a long-winded history lesson, but it, it, this is what history does, okay? You read this, and it should make us think of, of another family in which it's not like this. Um, yes, Hannah had her Elkaniah, and that's a shame, but Ruth had her Boaz. Um, same time period, same broken culture. Uh, the point here is this. Not every man is wicked, even in the midst of a broken culture. Anybody willing to say amen to that? Uh, there is a Boaz out there. There is a kinsman redeemer. And so it's such a similar picture. Everything Boaz proved to be, faithful man, a covenant keeper, sheltered a Ruth, God's man in a broken culture, Elkaniah undermines. Uh, Boaz, again, is the kinsman redeemer, an Old Testament type of Christ, foreshadowing the king of kings and ultimately the one whom we all need. Um, but Elkaniah, not so much, okay? And I think every man in this room, you, you get to have a choice, especially when life is hard. Are you going to be a Boaz or are you going to be an Elkaniah? So again, even as Samuel is about to come on the scene, we're reminded that men fall short. Uh, neither Boaz or Elkaniah or Samuel or Saul or David truly meet uh, the deepest needs of hearts in our quest for redemption and forgiveness. Only Christ does that. And so I don't want to miss him in all this history um, as we read further in the weeks ahead about Hannah and Elkaniah and Penaniah and next week again, Eli and Samuel. Let's keep focused on the one who really matters. Do you know Jesus Christ our kinsman redeemer, the ultimate savior and forgiver of our sins. Have you personally experienced the pinnacle of this cycle um, that Judges speaks of? And so as our musicians come, let me remind you of that cycle. Rebellion. Not a person in this room has not lived there. All right? Rebellion. We all have a sin problem. Retribution. We've all lived there too. Feeling the consequences of our sin are just the weight uh, of the broken world around us. Then there's repentance. And this is the crux. The start of the good news. If you want to move into revival, you have to start with personal repentance. You have to see your sin for what it is. You have to admit it. You have to confess it. And you have to turn from it. And then you need to see Jesus for who he is. Savior. Sinless the perfect sacrifice, the fulfillment of all God's promises, both to Israel and to man. Do you know him? Let's stand and let's respond to him today.